If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 this morning. Let's uh, begin by reading both of these Psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. And against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. If Christianity is good news, or you could say since the truth of the gospel, Christianity is the greatest news, why are so many of its followers discouraged? If the truth of Christ's death on the cross that forgives you of all of your sins really is the greatest news, why are you struggling with discouragement? Why are so many Christian people battling this common reality? This was the question that a medical doctor turned pastor sought to answer in his classic book entitled Spiritual Depression. The author David Martin Lloyd-Jones was seeking to answer this question. Why so many Christian people, although they have received the greatest news and they have personalized it to themselves, they have applied it to them that Jesus Christ has indeed died for their sins and they have been fully forgiven. Why that reality, even though it exists and is true of them, they still battle discouragement, perhaps even on a daily 
basis. And as he went about answering this question, he talked about various reasons. Some may be their temperament, maybe just by nature. They're very introspective and that leads them to be discouraged. Perhaps it's because of some circumstance that's taken place in their life or because of some sin they're battling, because of a whole host of reasons. But as he began to answer the question of how you solve that problem, of what you do when you are really discouraged, when you are downcast in soul, the text of scripture he turned to was the text that we read this morning, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And perhaps you know that experientially. Perhaps this psalm, like many of the psalms, is one that you value personally. It has been a psalm that has encouraged you in your lowest points. When you have been discouraged, you have turned to this particular passage of Scripture to find encouragement because of the refrains that are repeated. You notice in 42 verse 5, he says, why are you cast down on my soul? And then he says again in 42 11, why are you cast down on my soul? And again in Psalm 43 verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? The Lord's people really do have this, drawn, they're drawn to the Psalms because of their often experiential nature. You read the Psalms, maybe these two, and you, you almost seems like if you're reading someone's journal entry, their diary, their account of their inner turmoil, and passages like this are so encouraging to us. So this morning, it's my intention to examine Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, both of them together. And the reason being, perhaps you noticed, is the repetition. There's that refrain that's repeated 42.5, 42.11, 43.5. But that's actually not the only repetition that occurs. If you look with me at your Bibles, 42 verse 9 is almost repeated in some part thematically, but also verbatim from the text in chapter 43, Psalm 43 verse 2. He says, why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. The same line occurs in Psalm 43. Again, also, Psalm 43, there's no heading. It's the only psalm in all of book two, from Psalm 42 to 72, that has no heading. Somewhat indicating that it was designed to be used in conjunction or perhaps was originally attached to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, they go together. And then furthermore, there is this logical, or you could even say experiential progression of the, psal the psalmist as he struggles with discouragement that begins in Psalm 42 and ends in Psalm 43. So it's my intention to examine this text this morning. And we'll do so with three headings. And the first heading would be verses 1 through 5. And that would be longing and lament. Longing and lament. Psalm 42. Look with me at verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. The psalmist uses this analogy of thirst, one that we are familiar with. Perhaps not so much thinking of deer being thirsty for streams, but perhaps even in our own experience, we can relate to this metaphor, the metaphor of one thirsting, of needing to be satisfied, of having some desire that is going unmet. And the psalmist uses this to describe his desire for God. Not just physical things of this world. He desires God alone to meet this need. A need that exists in the deepest part of him. It exists in his soul. And it's important for us that this longing is, is expressed at the outset of the psalm. Because this informs our reading of this psalm. 
Perhaps we read a discouragement like this and we tend to think, oh, this person really struggled. They were some sort of immature follower of Christ. Look at their, the, the struggle, the inward turmoil that they're battling. Perhaps they, they didn't really believe the word of God. Maybe they weren't a true follower of Christ. We look down perhaps maybe on this person because of their inward struggle. But notice what they're saying. This individual, whoever the psalmist was, is stating their soul's desire. This is the deepest part of them. You think about our own struggle. Is our soul's deepest desire for God? I dare say that often we are wrestling with our soul's desires being torn in different areas. We want to pursue this desire or this desire or find these desires met in something else other than God. But the psalmist at the outset affirms his deepest desire is for God himself. You notice with me at verse 1 and 2, four times God's name appears. His focus is on God. This is not an immature follower of Christ, follower of God. This is one who desires the Lord. His turmoil is not created by some material reason, some lack of material possession. His turmoil is not because of some indwelling sin he is battling. His turmoil is not because of some pursuit of worldly pleasure. His turmoil is caused by the fact that he desires God. And he cannot seemingly in his own mind appear before him. Look with me at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist reveals that his struggle, his turmoil is caused by some sort of distanciation from God. We read later in this psalm, verse 6, that the psalmist is presumably in the land of Jordan, the land of the Hermon Mountains. He's far, far away from the temple where God was manifesting his glory. He's far away from the corporate gathering of God's people. And he desires to be there. He desires to go with the throng of God's people to worship him. And he is not there. His longing is for God. He knows his ultimate desire is met in God. His only source of satisfaction is in God. His greatest joy is in God. His utmost delight on this earth is in God himself. He affirms all these realities. And this morning, I just want to pose this question. Is this language foreign to us? Perhaps we read the psalmist saying, as a deer pants for flowing streams, my soul thirsts for God. And that language is sort of striking to us. Is that really true? Is Maybe he's just being a little bit melodramatic. Maybe he's being... He's just over-exaggerating his circumstances. But no, this is the language of a follower of Christ. And though this is not in this text, it it would be appropriate to go beyond the boundaries of this text at this point and just examine that this language is used by the person of Jesus to apply to one who comes to Christ in search of eternal life. John 4, verse 13 and 14, he describes to the woman at the well, if you desire... Water, so that you will never thirst again. You must come to Christ. John 6, 53 through 56. John 7, 37 and 38. These passages, Jesus uses this language, a soul's desire for God, and he applies it to himself. If you desire eternal life, you must have this desire to desire God himself, to desire the person of Jesus Christ. 
This language is not foreign to a Christian. If you are a follower of Christ, at some point in your life, though it may not be true this morning, this desire has been your soul's desire. You have desired God more so than any other thing in this world. And that is the psalmist's longing. He longs for God. But this longing is intermingled with a lament. A lament. And the lament is that he cannot come near to God. We see again in the end of verse 2. When shall I come and appear before God? And there are actually two things that are making his lament even more pronounced. Those are in verse 3 and verse 4. I want to draw your attention to those. Look with me at verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He says he's surrounded by a group of people. They're not identified at this point in the psalm. He just says they. They, this group of people, unidentified, are saying to me, they are questioning me, where is your God? In other words, the struggle that he's already facing. He's longing for God. He cannot come near to him or approach him for some reason. He's far away from God, God's glory. And his enemies are using the exact taunt that would be the most painful for him spiritually. They are questioning Where is your God? The spiritual adversaries of this individual are not fighting nicely. They're fighting dirty. They're going for his weakest point emotionally. And they're pointing at that to discourage him. Beyond just the opposition of his enemies, the memories of his past are only increasing this lament. Look with me at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. You can read this one of two ways. That he pours out his soul and he remembers these things and therefore is encouraged. But it seems more contextual to read as as he remembers these things, he proceeds to pour out his soul. In other words, he has this memory of him going to the house of God with others in worship to praise him, to delight in him. To appear before God. And that memory only amplifies the fact that right now in his current experience. He is not drawing near to God. He is far from God's glory revealed with God's people. The memories of his past are only increasing his lament. And his longing. And this reveals to us something about the nature of discouragement. Or at least the discouragement that the psalmist faced. His longing Increased his lament. And his lament. Increased his longing. He longed to be with God. And he was far away from those. From God's glory. Far away from the temple of God. Far away from the corporate gathering of God's people. Worshipping him. He was far away from that. And so he lamented his circumstances. By virtue of the fact of being far away from. That gathering of God's people in worship. He longed to be back with God. You see, it's almost as if a double spiral that goes downward in deeper and deeper into discouragement. As he longed for God, he lamented his circumstances. And as he lamented his circumstances, it only increased his longing for God. This is the nature oftentimes of the discouragement that we face. Our circumstances, whatever they may be, discourage us. It's unlikely that the circumstances this morning are we are kept away from gathering with God's people clearly evidenced by the fact that you're here this morning. But there are things circumstantially that do discourage us. 
And to be more precise, they make it seem as if God is far from us. That in turn, if you are a follower of Christ, you have this desire, only increases your desire for God. And that increased desire for God only increases the pain that you're currently feeling. This is the nature of spiritual discouragement. So what are you to do? When you are battling with this discouragement on a daily basis, what is your commitment? What is your response in the midst of those circumstances? It's found in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What is the appropriate response to longing, to lament? It's to stop listening to yourself and start addressing your own soul. This is the counsel that Lloyd-Jones puts forward in his book. We wake up in the morning and there's this running conversation that starts. It's like the tape recorder or a podcast. Someone hits play and it just starts. You wake up and the thoughts begin entering your mind. You, you don't even, sometimes you wonder, how do they even get there? Where are these thoughts coming from? I don't want these thoughts in my mind, but they're just coming. And they come over and over and over again. And the more you allow that to happen without addressing it, without actually speaking to your own self, you will continue to be discouraged. The psalmist addresses his own soul. You see in verse 5, he's speaking to himself. And it would be appropriate not to insert any modern notions of addressing oneself. If you go out in the world and you find a lot of textbooks on uh, different elements of human psychology, you'll find a lot written about speaking to yourself, improving your self-esteem, looking at yourself and to somehow help you, yourself feel better. But let me warn you this morning that the longer you look at yourself, the more discouraged you're going to become. If you truly believe that God is holy, that he is in a different category than you are, if you keep looking at yourself, you will not find any encouragement that will bring you out of discouragement. You must look to God. And so the psalmist addresses his own soul from this standpoint. Hope in God. His deliverance is found in him. I will again praise him, my salvation and my, and my God. Although my circumstances are not reflective of what I desire them to be, and although discouragement has set in in my soul, I'm going to look to God and address myself. Soul, you have no right to be discouraged. You have every right to encourage yourself in the Lord. There's a funny story that church historians tell about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, as you know, a great reformer. You know, perhaps the history of him. He battled with this struggle, spiritually being discouraged. And his wife uh, sought to counsel him and encourage him, strengthen him in the Lord. And nothing she was saying was effective. And his wife, Katerina, had a unique sense of humor. And so one day she put on a black dress. And Luther went up to his wife and said, why are you mourning? And she said, God's dead. And he said, God's not dead. He said, well, then why are you mourning as if he died? And it was that interaction that brought Martin Luther out of discouragement. He realized that God is not dead. That as he stated earlier in this psalm, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He exists. And by virtue of the fact that God exists, 
you have reason to be encouraged. You must preach this truth to yourself over and over and over again. In the midst of deep longings and deep lament. Well, that brings us to a second point this morning. Second heading and that's verse 6 through 11. And label this descent to despair. Descent to despair. We live in a pragmatic society where we want things to work. We're discouraged. We want some quick, easy solution to bring us out of our discouragement. And you might be tempted to think, okay, this is what's going to solve my problem. If I preach to myself, my problems are going to go away. Well, look what happens just after he's addressed his own soul. After he said, why are you cast down on my soul? Look at the exact wording of the text. Verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. What he does, he preaches to himself that doesn't solve his problem. You might think, well, that's not a helpful solution. What's the benefit of a solution if it doesn't solve my problem? He addresses his own soul. And it doesn't change his circumstances. This, again, instructs us about the nature of discouragement. Discouragement persists. It's not something that goes away quickly or easily or readily. Discouragement looms over your life. It looms over your life like June gloom. There's the unique weather phenomenon in this area of June gloom. And if you've gone to the coast in the month of June or even in May, there's also a phrase called May gray, although I've heard it's not as popular. Or July, no sky July. Or August, foggest. All these phrases to describe all the months of the year. Um, there's this gloom that loons over this area. And there are, I'm not even going to try and discern the meteorological reasons for why that occurs. But if you've been near the coast, you know that you can temporarily arise above the fog. You might be at the beach and you drive up the hill, the mountain, and eventually you get above the fog and you can look down on it. But at some point you have to come back down into the fog. You come back down and you're under this layer of fog and you may be under there for a long time. It may you know, break for five or ten minutes. The sun comes out and you have this glimmer of hope and then the fog's back. And then you have this glimmer of hope again, but then the fog persists. You go to bed, the next day you get up and you do the same thing and guess what? The fog's out there again. Sorry. No sunny day at the beach today. This is June gloom. And in many ways, this is reflective of our struggles with discouragement. It persists over our life. For a moment in time, you can grasp some hope. You say, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you discouraged? Hope in God. There's this glimmer of sunshine. And then the next day, discouragement is right back in your life. It persists. This is the nature of true spiritual discouragement. It's not something that goes away rather quickly. Even if you encourage your spirits with God's truth, it may be present the next day and the next day and the next day. Perhaps some of you are sitting here this morning on the heels of a season of discouragement where you are battling with this reality of feeling or seemingly being far away from God and it has seemed like that for a long period of time. This is the nature of spiritual struggle. In the life and diary of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to Native Americans in the mid-1700s. Jonathan Edwards records some of his, David Brainerd, his friend's internal experiences. And I just would like to read some of these journal entries, just in brief, to make this point clear that, that discouragement, that struggle is not something that goes away 
overnight. It's something that may persist in your life. He writes Monday, October 18th, 1742. In the morning, I felt some sweetness, but still pressed through trials of soul. My life is a constant mixture of consolations and conflicts, and will be so till I arrive at the world of spirits. She means heaven. Next day, Tuesday, October 19th, this morning and last night, I felt a sweet longing in my soul after holiness. My soul seemed so to reach and stretch toward the mark of perfect sanctity that it was ready to break with longings. Discouraged one day, next morning, encouraged. Monday, October 24th, just four days later, felt so vile and unworthy that I scarce knew how to converse with human creatures. The next day, Monday, October 25th, in the evening, I enjoyed the divine presence in prayer. It was a sweet and comfortable season to me. My soul longed for God, for the living God. Next day, Tuesday, October 26th, underwent the most dreadful distresses under a sense of my own unworthiness. It seemed to me I deserved rather to be driven out of the place than to have anybody treat me with kindness or come hear me preach. This is the nature of spiritual discouragement that can happen for God's people. It persists. You may preach to yourself. You may address your own soul with the truth. But that doesn't guarantee that it will immediately leave your life. There is no quick fix solution for a battle with discouragement. And this discouragement leads the psalmist to his deepest expression, his most poetic metaphor that he uses to describe his current circumstances. He is at his lowest point. Look with me at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He has this description of his sorrow that's almost cryptic. Deep calls to deep. That's sort of confusing language. At the roar of your waterfalls. What is he talking about? Or this phrase, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He is crushed by his despair. He is low and he's expressing it with these metaphors. It's interesting that at the beginning of the psalm, he uses water as a metaphor for desiring God. He goes to God and what type of water does he find? He doesn't find a flowing stream that satisfies his thirst. He finds a crashing torrent of water, waterfalls, breakers, waves, wave after wave and notice the language, from God. Wave after wave from God pours against his soul. He realizes at this point that God is in control of his circumstances. That God is in control. That God, if he desired, could bring him back to the people of God. The breakers and the waves were from the Lord. And these breakers and waves are beating him down. He is at his lowest point. If you've ever been to Santa Barbara and you've walked around the harbor area, you notice you can walk along the seawall. And if you stand on that seawall for any length of time, you had better watch out because there are some big waves that come and occasionally they crash against that wall and the water rises up and it comes over the wall and you can get soaked. This has happened to many, many people I'm sure have gone to the Santa Barbara seawall. And over and over and over again, that wall remains. And water crashes and beats against it. Ankles and I went up there in January. 
uh, just before this bomb cyclone event happened. And so the swells were very, very big. The waves were massive. And they were crashing over and over and over again. So much so that sometimes the waves were going over the wall. That's the image the psalmist is giving here. The waves of God in the midst of despair are crashing against him. So much so that they're going over him. He is feeling flooded. So much that maybe this wall is beginning to crack or break. He's not going to continue. His soul is being beaten down. And it is at this point, at his lowest point emotionally, what does he cling to? What does he reach to as a source of encouragement? Look with me at verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At his lowest point, the only time in Psalm 42 and 43, he reaches out and he grabs onto the Lord's covenant name, the name of faithfulness, the name of promise, the name associated with steadfast love. In his deepest struggle, he comes to this point and he realizes this is not just from God who is powerful and mighty and strong. This is from the Lord. This is from the one who loves me. This is from the one who's made covenant love. And for you, if you are in Christ, that covenant has been sealed by the Holy Spirit because you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You may be sitting here this morning and wave after wave of discouragement is going over your soul. And let me encourage you this morning. There's one thing that you can cling on to. That, that comes from the Lord. That comes from one who loves you. He commands his steadfast love for you. And so in the midst of sorrow and discouragement, reach out and cling to the Lord. Cling to the rock. And that's what the psalmist does in verse 9. I say to God, my rock. But notice what he says. He begins to, in his mind, affirm things that are not true. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's affirming these things to be true that are not true. God has not forgotten him. God knows all things. God knows exactly where he's in. And anything, God remembers him because waves and breakers from God are coming upon him. He's affirming things that aren't true in the midst of his discouragement. And so he makes this statement about his enemies. Verse 10 is, with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? His adversaries are pushing down upon him. Nothing about his circumstances has changed. He's clinging on to the Lord. He's preaching the truth to his soul. And it seems like nothing is improving. What is the response that he should do now? If nothing is improving, he's clinging to the Lord. The encouragement is not coming. The discouragement still persists. What should he do? Well, look with me at verse 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He repeats the exact same thing he said earlier. And again, this is instructive for us on how we respond to times of spiritual discouragement. What is needed for us when our soul is really struggling is not new information. We don't need some new insight into our struggle that we haven't thought about before. We have to remind ourselves of the truth we already know. We reappropriate it and reapply it to ourselves over and over and over again until we are lifted from our discouragement by the gracious hand of our Lord. So the psalmist 
looks at his soul again and says, why are you cast down? Hope in God. I will again praise him. Perhaps you really have been wrestling with some form of discouragement. You are beaten down emotionally. And you've tried this. You tried preaching to yourself. And it has not worked in your mind. What you need this morning is to recommit to this act. To recommit to this practice. This is the appropriate response of a faithful, spiritually mature follower of God who is wrestling with discouragement. That no matter what happens, whether my circumstances change or not, whether the feelings feelings come to me or not, and I have this desire to follow God, no matter what happens, I'm going to return over and over again to these realities. That salvation is found in God. And I will wait for him. Well, that brings us to a third heading. He goes from longing and lament to a descent into despair. And now faith for the future. Faith for the future. Psalm 43 verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. He now begins to make requests of God. To ask God to deliver him. In other words, he is moving from not just affirming things to be true about God's nature. That God is his salvation and he will wait for him. But now he's actually beginning to act upon those affirmations. Yes, hope in God, my salvation. Now God, act upon that. Deliver me. Save me. He is pulling himself out of despair by bringing his requests to the Lord. He asks God to deliver him, to rescue him from those who are oppressing him. But again, notice what does not change. Look at verse 2. Notice what does not change. His circumstances. Verse 2, you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He is praying. He is bringing his petitions. He is acting out his faith in prayer. And his circumstances still are not changing. This would be where many of us quit. We give up. We consign ourselves to spiritual discouragement. But that is not what the psalmist does. He persists. He keeps going. Because his faith is not so much bound by the present. But it looks forward to a future reality. And that's expressed in his prayer in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. This affirmation of faith, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a liar, O God, my God. God, if you deliver me, I will go. He has faith in the future that's coming for him because of who God is. And God is going to send out his light and truth that will bring him, return him to this manifestation of God's glory in the temple, in the corporate worship of God's people. And you see this progression. If you look with me at verse 3, he says, let them bring me, and it begins, holy hill. Then it moves to your dwelling. Then it moves to your altar. Lastly, to God, my exceeding joy. His desire isn't just to be there with God's people in worship. It's more than that. 
It's God himself. God, without your light and truth, I will return. So that begs this all-important question. What does he mean when he says light and truth? You would think by the amount of time he spends belaboring the presence of enemies in this passage, he would ask for something else. Lord, send out your armies or send something to deliver me. My enemies are oppressing me. They're questioning where you are. Lord, send something powerful, something mighty. And he says, send out your light in truth. Why would he be drawn to these particular things? Well, if you read your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, these two qualities, light and truth, are aspects of God's revelation. They're aspects of God's word. This is a word that is true. It is a word that gives light to those who are simple. It unfolds light for those who are blind. He's asking God, send forth your revelation, send forth your word, and that will be sufficient to bring me to your presence. In other words, if you give me your word, if you send your word to me, I will come to you and give you praise. It's instructive that Psalm 42 and 43, and as we'll examine next week, Psalm 44 fall in a series of psalms that build towards Psalm 45. I just want to take you to Psalm 45 very briefly. Psalm 45, this is really an enthronement psalm, a royal psalm, I should say actually, a royal psalm that speaks of the majesty of God. As this progression builds, Psalm 42 to Psalm 43 to Psalm 44, here in Psalm 45 we read of of one who will bring him. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. As you read this passage, you realize the psalm is desirous of the king to come. And as the king comes, light and truth Proceed to the people of God. So as the psalmist prays in Psalm 43.3. Send out your light and truth. It's instructive from the ordering of the Psalter. That his mind is going toward the coming of a king. Namely the Messiah. And we know that that is ultimately fulfilled by the person of Jesus. That as Jesus comes he brings light and truth. And brings us to God himself. You may be far away from God this morning in your experience. Although God is omnipresent, he is with you. It may seem as if he is 10,000 miles away from you. But there is one thing that assures you that he is with you and that he will always be with you. And that is the person of his son, the person Jesus, who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ will bring us to God. That is was his mission on earth. And so that brings the psalmist to this last statement. Psalm 43 verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. This last statement really is a statement of confidence. He knows although discouragement has happened. His actions are turning. They are mending. There's no statement in this psalm of restoration occurring. 
There's no statement in this psalm of his experience of joy. But there is a statement at the end that he is confident. And it ends with his confidence that God will restore him. That he will wait for God and his salvation. This third occurrence of this refrain again asks us this question. Are we committed to doing this in times of discouragement? Or perhaps you are not one who's discouraged, but you know someone who really is struggling with this struggle of being cast down in their soul because it seems God, in their mind, is not loving to them. How are you going to lovingly come alongside that brother and sister in Christ and remind them of these truths? That God is their salvation and he is their God. And therefore they have every reason to hope in him. Well, as a point of final application, I want to pose a question that you may have thought throughout the sermon. And that is, why would God do this? The psalmist affirms that these breakers and these waves are from God. Why would God do this? Why would God seemingly keep himself at a distance experientially from the psalmist? Why would God not rush to him and bring him back? Why is God doing this to the psalmist? This struggle is coming seemingly under the, it's not seemingly, it's coming under the banner of God's sovereignty. He's in control. Why has he brought this upon the psalmist? And that's answered in a very simple way. You read the psalm, you'll notice how many times his mind goes out to God. How many times he's drawing attention to God. Four times in the first two verses, he mentioned God's name. Then, Psalm 43, verse 4, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Where is his mind going? In the midst of his deepest distress, in his darkest days, where does his mind go? His mind goes to God. In other words, this is the best thing that could possibly happen to him because his mind has been directed towards someone beyond himself, to God. His desire is coming to fruition. He desires God, and because of that, he is moving toward him. All throughout this psalm, we see repetition over and over of God's name, and that is because God is very present for the psalmist in his mind. It's not just that God exists outside of the psalmist. God is with him, and he is with him as he instructs himself in natures or times of discouragement. There is a song that was written a number of years ago by John Newton, and perhaps you know John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, which is a well-known song, pretty much everyone here probably knows it, but he wrote a much, much lesser-known song that a friend in seminary shared with me my first semester of being here, and I was discouraged at that point in time, and there were particular circumstances that were discouraging then, and this friend said, you need to look up this song, it's called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, and it's a song that John Newton wrote, it's a poem really, um, about his own struggle with discouragement. And I just want to read that song. It's very instructive about why God does this to us, why he brings discouragement into our life. He doesn't cause us to be discouraged, but there are things in our life that God could do to remove discouragement, and perhaps he doesn't initially. Why would God do that? And this psalm really does, uh, song really does make that clear. John Newton writes, he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow. His desire is somewhat similar to the psalmist. He desires God. He desires to grow. In faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he I trust has answered prayer. 
God, you taught me to desire you, to desire to grow. And I believe you've answered my prayer. But notice what he says. It has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. God, grow me. Keep me from sinning. Subdue the turmoil in my soul. And what happens? Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. He really struggles because he's praying to grow. And the Lord, it seems as if doing the opposite. He's pouring out difficulty on his life. He's allowing the psalmist to feel the internal struggles of his soul. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. God answers the discouraged person in the midst of their weakness. And the discouragement itself is something that he uses to bring you closer to him. And so you may this morning be really wrestling with what God is doing in your heart. Why there is inner turmoil. And let me encourage you that that is a work of the steadfast love of God to bring you to himself. Let's bow for prayer.